Let us pray together. Father, I'm so thankful that the work of our salvation is finished on the cross. Let us never forget and let us never fail to celebrate that amazing truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Speaking of truth, do you know where it is that we turn uh, to find the truth? How do we know what is right and what is wrong? What is the standard of truth? Well, I believe that is the most important question that we could ask this morning. Uh, Because everything you believe, everything that you will choose to believe, the rest of your life will depend upon the answer to that question, where do we go to find the truth? You know, we live in a divided country. We're divided and it seems more deeply divided every single day over all kinds of issues. And we're not just divided in America, but we're divided around the world. We're divided on social issues. Uh, People ask, uh, what is the definition of marriage? And so there are all kinds of different views about that. We're divided over issues like that. Today we're debating transgender issues. Who would have imagined 10 years ago that that would be the debate today, but we're divided on that. We are certainly divided over religious issues. Are we going to follow Jesus and become Christian? Are we going to follow uh, L. Ron Hubbard and become Scientologist? Are we going to follow Muhammad and become Islam? Uh, Muslim, rather, are we going to follow Joseph Smith and become Mormons? We're divided over religious issues. And even inside the church, it seems that we're divided. And as the church in America becomes more and more liberal every year, uh, there are greater and greater divides. And there are things, even amongst people who would call themselves faithful Christians, things that we're divided on. Now, why is it that there's just so much division? Now, the easy answer and the answer that we're tempted to give is that those people who disagree with us are just stupid. You know, I don't know if I should use that word in church, but you know, that's the first thing we think when, when, when we see that people think differently about subjects than, than we do, that they're on the other side of an issue. We think that there's a problem with their intelligence or, or maybe there's just a problem with their morality, that they're somehow morally deficient. But you know, I don't think that either one of those is the case, uh, most often anyway. Uh, This is not an issue of intellect or education or of morality. I think it all goes back to the question, where do we go to find the truth? What is the absolute source? What is the greatest authority? Where do we go for truth? Well, you know, about 500 years ago, people were struggling with this in the Western world. Uh, They were asking the question, where do we go uh, to find truth? Now, uh, you might say it was a different context and and certainly the issues were different, but I really don't think it was as different as people would would imagine. Uh, The question was still 500 years ago as as the whole Western world was uh, just in this precarious position, the, the, the question was still, where do we go for the truth? Now, they had their hot button issues, and we have different hot button issues, but I think the question is the same. And so this year marks the 500-year anniversary of, uh, of those people wrestling with that truth. When we say 500 years, we count back to October 31st, 1517, so it'll be exactly 500 years in just a few weeks. Uh, when a monk and a priest and an educator by the name of Martin Luther uh, went to the chapel church in Wittenberg, Germany, where he lived, 
and he nailed to the door 95 theses or 95 complaints against the church. Now, the complaints focused on something called indulgences, which we're going to talk a little bit about next week. Uh, but, the very, but the very issue, indulgences was the hot button issue. It was the transgender issue of the day, if you will. But, but the real issue that Martin Luther was addressing is where do we go to find out what we should believe? And so that began a movement that we call the Reformation today. Uh, where uh, the church rediscovered and reestablished the foundations of the faith. In fact, they decided uh, from their study of God's word that there were five tenets, that there were five pillars that the faith should be built upon. We call those the solas. Have you heard that word before? The solas. It's a Latin word that means only or alone. And uh, we, we express these five foundations, these five pillars as the five solas. Now, I only know six Latin words, period, but I'm going to share all six with you, okay? I hope you'll be impressed. So here are the five solas. Sola scriptura, which means it is by scripture alone where we go to find authority. Sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone. Solus Christus, that we are saved by Christ alone. Sola Fide, that we are saved through faith alone. And Sola Dea Gloria, we are saved for the glory of God alone. And so they established these five things as the foundation of faith. Now what I want to do over the next few weeks, I've never done this before, and I know that most of you are not history people. There are just like three of you here that enjoy history. Uh, but I, but I want to take a little bit of time in each of these messages, and I want to talk about what happened 500 years ago. You know, there was somebody between Jesus and your grandmother, and what that somebody did matters to what we know and believe today. So I want to take some time and look at what happened 500 years ago, and then I want us to focus on the Word of God. And I want us to hold the record of history up against the Word of God, and I want us to... <coughs> pardon me, to reestablish the foundations of our faith. So today we're going to talk about the source of truth. Really to understand what was happening uh, in the 1500s, you, you have to know that about 500 to 800 years ago, that Christianity didn't look anything like it looks today. That over the years, the 1200 to 1500 years since Christ, little bit at a time, the, uh, the tradition of the church, uh, the teachings of councils, and the decrees of popes had become uh, at least as authoritative as the Word of God. And so over the years, they had, <coughs> pardon me, elevated uh, the tradition of the church to such a point that it was on equal footing with the Word of God in its authority. And then they pushed just a little bit further and the tradition of the church exceeded the tradition or the authority of the word of God. And as a result, all kinds of practices crept into the church. Practices that had little or no precedent in the Bible. Things such as purgatory or praying to the saints or the celibacy of clergy or the office of papacy or the worst of those indulgences, which we'll talk about 
<clears throat> next week. And then as a result of that, the church in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, the church was corrupted uh, by, uh, by greed, by sexual immorality, and by false teaching. And this isn't just a Protestant saying something about Catholics. This, this sermon series doesn't really have anything to do with the, with the Catholic faith. I'm certainly not attacking Catholics as we go through these uh, tenets of our faith. I'm talking about what we should believe and what the Bible tells us to believe. But this corruption would be something that would be acknowledged by both Protestant and Catholic uh, scholars. Uh, in fact, there was a Protestant Reformation that we'll be focusing on for a few weeks. Uh, but there was also a few years after this, a Catholic <laughs> Reformation, pardon me, uh, that addressed many of the same issues. So you might ask, how in the world did Christianity become so corrupt? How, how, how in the world could Christianity have become so different from what we know today and what the Bible uh, teaches us as uh, as first century Christianity. How could it have been destroyed so badly? Well, to answer that question, you have to understand that the Bible in those years was available only in Latin. Now, people couldn't read Latin. A few priests could read Latin. There were a few business or legal people or lawyers that could have read Latin. But Latin was not the language of the day. But the Bible was only available in Latin. It was called the Vulgate. It had been uh, translated in the third century by Jerome. And people just couldn't read it. And even when people heard it read, because in every church service, they would read some of the Bible, but they would read it in Latin. And there were times when the Bible would be read and not one single person in the room would have any idea what was being read. And so people were completely separated from the word of God. If you wanted to know what was right or wrong, or if you wanted to know what to believe, you had to go to a priest and just ask him. And then he would tell you what he thought you should believe, but there was no connection between you and the Bible, the word of God. But things began to change in the 1300s. There was a man by the name of John Wycliffe. You've probably heard the name Wycliffe before. And John Wycliffe was a philosopher and a professor, and he had an astounding belief. He believed, are you listening to this? This is, was astounding, and it changed his whole world. He believed that the Bible should be written in a language that common people could read. Now that was so astounding, it was so controversial that it created waves uh, throughout the whole Western world. Wycliffe lived in England, but, but all of Europe really was impacted by this, uh, what they called a scandalous belief that the Bible should, made, should be made available to, to be read by anybody. Now, Wycliffe lived in England and so he translated, he actually did it without permission, translated the Bible into English and they began to make copies. Now in those days, it was, they were handwritten copies, so there weren't a lot of copies. You couldn't go down to the local Lifeway bookstore and, and buy a copy, but, but for the first time in, in, I don't know, a thousand years, almost a thousand years, people could read the Bible in their own language. Well, this was such a controversy that even after Wycliffe died, they decided to have a trial uh, and um, I mean, this was 30 years after he was dead. The church was so upset that the waves of his 
uh, Bible translation view. We're, 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 so, we're so controversial, even 30 years later, that they decided to have a trial. They put Wycliffe on trial. Of course, he wasn't there. He was dead. But they had a trial, and they found him guilty. They pronounced him a heretic. They declared the act of translating the Bible into the common language unacceptable. They dug up his bones, and they burned them to punish him for translating the Bible. (laughs) This is true. It's hard to even imagine. They burned his bones and spread the ashes in the River Swift But the cat was out of the bag. Things begin to change. The 1400s are most noted for one thing. Do you know what it is? The invention of the printing press, which just added fuel to the fire. Now, Bibles are beginning to be mass produced. And then that brings us to the 1500s, the century of the Reformation. And so Martin Luther, uh, who I'd spoke of earlier, uh, Martin Luther, we'll talk more about his life and his, uh, 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 how the Lord used him next week. Uh, but Martin Luther held the belief that uh, the greatest authority that we have is the word of God. Now, Martin Luther was a good Catholic and he didn't want to be anything other than a good Catholic. Uh, but he wanted to make clear that God's word was the authority and it was the final authority. And Martin Luther was called to task over that. In fact, he was called to recant, to take back what he said. And that's when he shared his famous words that I quote in part, I am bound by the scriptures. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience and I cannot do otherwise Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And then for the rest of Martin Luther's days, he really ran from the authorities that were trying to kill him because he said and he preached that the Bible was the final authority. Now, was Martin Luther right? They had a lot of hot button issues of their day. The biggest issue being indulgences, as I said. We have a lot of hot button issues today. And Martin Luther said all all of these issues would be cleared up if we could just identify what is the greatest authority. And I know Martin Luther was right about that because even today we could clear up the issues that divide us if we could identify what is the greatest authority. And Martin Luther said, the greatest authority is the word of God. And so what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to walk you through what the Bible has to say about that. I want us to see, is Martin Luther correct? What does the Bible have to say about its own authority? There are a lot of ways we could talk about the reliability and the authority of scripture, but let's just go to scripture itself. What does God's word have to say about the final authority for our lives. So I want to give you five things the Bible says. Now, each of these is going to build on the other one. Uh, We're eventually going to get to the point where we talk about the authority of the Bible and how it intersects with our lives. But to get there first, we have to build a foundation. And so I'm going to share with you one thing, and it's going to be sort of the bottom floor of this. And then I'm going to share with you something that builds on that and builds on that. Finally, we will see how this intersects with life. So number one, the nature of the Bible. Number one, the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. Now, the theological word we use for this is inspiration. 
inspiration. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, you may want to turn over to Matthew chapter 7, because that's where we're going to end up in a few moments, Matthew chapter 7. But, but here, I, I want you to look at a different verse that we'll put on the screen for you, 2 Timothy 3.16. So let's look at this verse together, 2 Timothy 3.16. The Bible says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness. Now we're gonna leave that verse up a moment because I want you to notice the first uh, few words. It says all scripture, all scripture, this includes all of what we find in our Bibles today. <coughs> Pardon me. All scripture is inspired by God. Now what does the Bible mean when it says of itself that it is inspired? Now that word doesn't mean what you probably think it means. Uh, there have been a few words that through the years in the English language, we have radically changed their definition. I uh, think about words such as uh, the word love. Uh, it means something very different today than it did three, 400 years ago. The word hope, uh, if you look it up in an old dictionary, in a new dictionary, it means something very different. And, and the word inspiration means something different. When we think about in, <coughs> pardon me, inspiration today, we, we think about perhaps an athlete saying that he was inspired uh, by some movie that he saw. Now, what does he mean when he says he was inspired by a movie? Well, he means he was just influenced by the movie, right? If, if we hear of someone say that they wrote a novel and their novel was inspired by some historical character, what do they mean? They mean that that historical character influenced what they wrote. So is this verse telling us that God influenced scripture? No, that's not what this says. Inspired is probably a bad word choice here because that's absolutely not what this says. The Greek word, the original language word, is a word that you, you may find familiar. It's a theonoustos. Now, you're thinking, I've never heard that word before, but let's break it into its pieces. Theo, theo, theology. Theo just means God. Noustos, you know what pneumonia is. It's a, it's a disease of the breath. It's a respiratory disease. What this word says in the original language, it's a compound word that says the scripture, all scripture is God breathed. God has breathed scripture to us. God has breathed out scripture to us. The word of God, the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. It's not just a book that somebody wrote that has uh, some catchy sayings and some, and some insightful advice. It, it's, not, it's not just some spiritual poetry that can inspire you to a loftier viewpoint. No, the Bible is the actual word of God. God has breathed it out. It is his breath to us. The Bible comes from God. Now, if we had enough time, we could go through the Bible and I could show you dozens and dozens of references in the Bible that tell us that, that remind us of that, that say clearly the Bible comes from the breath of God. We could go to Luke chapter 12 and other places and I could show you how uh, the, 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 Jesus said that the Old Testament was the very <laughs> words of God. We, we could go to, um, to John chapter 12 and we could see where Jesus claimed that his words were the words of God. Uh, we could go to Galatians chapter one and see where the apostle Paul says that 
when he wrote his letters in the Bible, that they were the words of God. We could go to second Peter chapter one, where Peter said that all scripture finds its source in God. The Bible is the word of God. Now you might say, well, why is that important? That seems like a fine theological point. Why would we spend time on that this morning? Well, I'll tell you, look look again at this verse that we have on the screen. All scripture is inspired. It's God breathed and, and. Now the word and there uh, is, is a word that's often translated and, but it's sometimes translated then. It has both, both meanings with it, and, 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 and it can be translated both ways in, in your Bible. Well, what it's saying here is that all the Scripture comes from God, then, as a result of that, because of that, it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. The reason why God's Word is helpful to us, the reason why God's Word is valuable to us, is what? Is because it is God's Word. There are all kinds of books that you could buy today. Christian books, secular books, self-help books, uh, inspiring biographies, poetry. There are all kinds of books you can buy today. And you perhaps could benefit in some way from all of them. But, but the Bible is unique because the Bible is the very words of God. And because of that, it is profitable for all of these things that we see in 2 Timothy 3. 16. So the the first step that we've established here is that the Bible is the word of God. Now, once we know that we can go to the next step and it's just a, it's just one more step, but we're getting closer to how this intersects with our lives. The next step is this. The Bible is without error. We call this inerrancy. The Bible is without error. Now, what do we mean when we say that? Well, we mean that when properly understood and translated, interpreted, I should say, the Bible in its original text is completely true in everything that it asserts. And so when we read something in the Bible, we know that it is absolutely true. It's true in exactly how it expresses it. The Bible is without error. Now, why do we believe the Bible is without error? Well, again, we could... We could talk for hours about this, and and one day we'll dig a little deeper into this, but let me just give you a few reasons today. First of all, it is the logical conclusion from the inspiration of Scripture and the trustworthiness and holiness of God. Now think about it. If, If the Word of God, if the Bible is the Word of God, if it's His words breathed out, If they're his words and he is trustworthy, if he is holy, then it, then the words must be true. Doesn't it make sense that, 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 and see, I want you to see we're building one principle on another. If the word of God is inspired, then it only makes sense that the word of God must be without error. It must be perfect. If it came from God and God is perfect, then of course his word is perfect. Another reason why we know it's perfect is this, because there's really no middle ground on this question. If you begin to throw out parts of the Bible as unreliable, as many people have done and are doing, if you, if you go through your Bible and begin to mark things out and say, well, that, that's not reliable and that's not true. Now, here's what you've done. You have all of a sudden made yourself a greater authority than the word of God. 
I mean, who are you to decide what verse is true and what verse is not true? You've made yourself the arbiter of, of truth. You've placed yourself higher in authority than the word of God. Now, the truth is, you can't begin to mark out passages in the word of God without losing the reliability of the entire word of God. I mean, if you begin to mark something out, where are you going to start? I mean, where are you going to stop? I mean, why not mark out something else? I mean, the Bible is a whole. It fits together. You either accept all of the Bible or none of the Bible. If Genesis 3 is a fable, then John chapter 3 is a farce. How can you say this part of the Bible is unreliable, but this part of the Bible, I will stake my life on this part of the Bible? No, I just don't think it's an intellectually honest thing to do. Now, you can be a critic of the Bible, and certainly uh, many people are critics of the Bible, and you may dismiss the Bible out of hand, and many people do. And you can do that and be intellectually honest. Or you can embrace the Bible and be intellectually honest. But, but there's no halfway position. There's no position in the middle. It, it's either true or it's not true. It's either reliable or it's not reliable. There's no middle ground on this. And then the third reason why we believe that it is true, that it is inerrant, is because the Bible claims to be without error. And, and we could find this over and over. Let me just give you the simplest reference, Psalm 19.7. I think I can show this to you on the screen. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The Bible says of itself that it is perfect, <laughs> pardon me, and that, it's, that it is true. Uh, if we had more time, this is one of those messages that uh, could be a message or it could be a six-month series. Uh, but if we had more time, I, I could show you some of the some of the particulars, but let me just show you one. There was a, there's an, there's a, a passage in a Matthew chapter 22. I was, I took a note this morning in Matthew chapter 22. There's a passage where Jesus is debating with the Sadducees. Uh, he, he's debating with the Sadducees about the resurrection. And if you want the, I'm not going to read the passage, but if you want the numbers, I looked it up this morning, verses 29 through 32. He's, he's debating with the Sadducees about the resurrection. <laughs> now the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, which was a pretty big deal. They didn't believe that anybody had life after death. And Jesus referred back to an obscure passage found in Exodus chapter three, and he, and, and, which was a part of the old Testament and, and a part the Sadducees knew well and believed. And Jesus points to the fact that they had missed the tense of a single verb in this obscure passage in Exodus chapter three, and that if they looked at the tense of that verb, then their whole theology would come crumbling down. Now, why is that important to us? Because Jesus was saying, that if you go back, even the tense of a verb in some obscure passage in Exodus chapter three was chosen by God and it is perfect. And you can build your belief system on that. See, the Bible testifies of itself that it is inerrant, that it is without error. So that's the second building block. So we've seen that the Bible is the word of God, it's inspired that it is perfect, that it is inerrant. That brings us to number three, the Bible is enough. The Bible is enough. 
Now, the theological word for this is sufficiency. The Bible is sufficient. That means that all things necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life and obedience to God and for the glory of God are found in Scripture. In Scripture. Practically, let me tell you what that means. It means first that we don't need to add anything to Scripture. Scripture's finished. It's enough. It's breathed out by God and it is perfect. And God says it is sufficient. And we don't need to add anything to Scripture. We, we, we don't need an extra book uh, to support Scripture. There's not Scripture part two. There's not a revision of Scripture. We don't need to add anything to Scripture. We don't need to read Dianetics. We don't need to read what the Mormons have produced. We don't need to read what anybody else has produced. Now, books are valuable and, and, and reading is, uh, is, is profitable. But when it comes to the Word of God, it is complete. We need to be careful that we don't seek a new word from the Lord. Uh, oftentimes you'll hear pastors uh, stand and say uh, in tele on television uh, uh, as, as often as in a pulpit, but uh, they'll say something like this. I have a new word from the Lord. Now, what should you do when you hear somebody say that? You should change the channel, okay? Is what you, you, should, you should exit the building. So my, my, God certainly leads us and guides us. He, he does that. The Bible promises that he will do that. But God doesn't give us a new word. It's not my, my, my job, my assignment to come up here and bring you a new word from the Lord. No, it's my assignment to come and explain the old word that he's already given to us. Once for all delivered to the saints. We don't need a, a new word from the Lord. We just need to understand the old word from the Lord. See, the Bible is sufficient. It is complete. We don't need to add anything to it. Now, you see this often, even in the, even the modern church. You, um, you, you listen to a lot of prosperity preachers say things, and you search scripture, and it's just not there. They couch it in, in religious words, and they, and they say that they, they received it from the Lord. But listen, if a pastor says he received something from the Lord, you need to ask him where the verse is. If he didn't have a verse, he didn't receive it from the Lord. But you, you hear this a lot in these prosperity gospel preachers, and many of them right here in the state of Texas. And, and it's, it's a common thing. Uh, you, you see it um, in a lot of devotion books today, some of these uh, Jesus calling books that are so popular and you look at what the authors claim about their own writing that they have received a, a special word from the Lord. Um, that's, a, that's a very, very dangerous thing. You, you see it in these books about these supposed people who have died and gone to heaven and come back and given us a, a new perspective on heaven. Now listen, our Bible gives us all the perspective on heaven that we need. It is complete, once for all delivered to the saints. When the Bible is said to be sufficient, it means that we must not add anything to Scripture. But it also means this. When we face problems and hardships, we should turn first to the Word of God. Now counselors are helpful. Self-help books may be motivational. I'm glad we have psychiatrists and psychologists and sociologists and, and, and I'm glad we have all kinds of people of learning who can, who can help us. But, but understand that the primary source of help is the word of God. Those, those can be helpful and, and therapy from time to time can be useful. But what we need first 
for peace, for joy, for satisfaction, for forgiveness, for, for, for hope. The answers to those questions are found first in the word of God. And if they're not found there, they will not be found. The Bible is enough. And then that brings us to the, to the fourth thing. If the Bible is inspired, it comes from God. If it is, if because of that, it is inerrant, it is perfect. And because of those two things, it is sufficient. Then we know this, the Bible is the final authority. It is the final authority. Now in the Reformation era, uh, you have to understand that if you could have pulled somebody aside and questioned them, uh, a leader in the church that had been corrupted, if you would have asked them uh, about the authority of the Bible, they would have said that the Bible has authority. They would have commended the authority of the Bible. They would have said, yes, the Bible has great authority. But the problem was they believed that something else had equal authority. You see, they, they, they would say that they respected the Bible. They would say that they believed the Bible had authority, but they would also say that something else, the, the tradition of the church, the decrees of popes, the teachings of councils, that those things too had authority. Now the problem is you can't have two authorities. You can't have two final authorities because what do you do when those authorities are in conflict? What do you do when one authority says one thing and one authority says something else? Well, in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, what the church said is that if there's a conflict between the two, then the tradition of the church wins. And that's how they came up with all of these, uh, all these practices that, that weren't just extra practices. They were at the very core of what it meant to be a Christian, what they taught that it meant to be a Christian. And, and, and all of these practices that, that were foreign to the word of God is because eventually the, the, there was a crisis and you couldn't have two authorities. And so they made the authority of the church higher uh, than the authority of the Bible. Now, why is that important to us today? Because we are often guilty of the same kind of compromise. Uh, we'll come and sit in services like this and we'll agree, we'll nod our heads. I'm a Bible man, we're a Bible church and, and uh, we uphold the, the, uh, the authority of scripture. We say that we esteem the Bible highly, but then something comes along where we want to do something or we want to believe something that is contrary to God's word. And so now we've got a problem. We've said that the Bible has authority, but we want to do something that contradicts the Bible. And what we do is the same thing they did 500 years ago. We will let our authority, which is usually ourselves, we will let our authority supersede the authority of the Bible. The whole time saying that we love the Bible. We're a Bible church. We're Bible people. I respect the Bible. But when it comes right down to where the rubber meets the road, we put our personal authority over the Bible's authority. I can tell you some, I can give you some examples. We talked a few weeks ago in one of our Sunday night Bible studies here. Um, and we'll go through all the details that we went through then, but we were talking about how to study the Bible and, and something just came up in the news that week that was pertinent to what we were talking about. And uh, so I read it to the church and it, it was a uh, very popular uh, pastor in America uh, who 
is uh, well known for his writings about the Bible and his love for the Bible. Uh, but he was asked why uh, in his church he had called a practicing homosexual man to be his worship pastor. And they said, do you not any longer believe the Bible? You are famous for writing about the value of the Bible. And you know what his reply was? Of course I still believe the Bible, but we couldn't find anybody else. He was really good at what he did and everybody loved him. Now, just let that sink in for a moment because this is the same thing that you and I are guilty of. I'm afraid too, too often for us to admit we say that we, we, we say the Bible has authority and it does until it doesn't. It, it has authority until we want to do something else. It has authority as long as it's not inconvenient to us. But as soon as it's inconvenient, then we put something just a notch or two ahead of the Bible. I served in a church a long time ago, uh, pastor, the first church I pastored, senior pastor of church. And, uh, Things were going well and rocking along pretty well. And uh, my wife and I and some others, we invited some people to a church function. And these people uh, were not the same race as the people who ordinarily came on Sunday morning. And that, uh, that led to a, uh, a meeting. <laughs> and so I sat in this room with... Uh, with these men and they explained to me that that just wasn't going to be okay at this church. And I was a young pastor. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't probably, but, uh, so I just, I opened the Bible. I thought the problem was they didn't know what the Bible said. And so I opened the Bible and just, um, very calmly showed them some scripture verses that said the other way, said that everybody was welcome. I thought that would clear it up. <laughs> it didn't. They said, Pastor, you know, we appreciate the, your Bible verses, but you've got to know that people here just aren't comfortable with that. And what we ought to do, if you really want to do this, Pastor, is we ought to bring it to a vote. Bring it to a vote. Now, I didn't know much, but I knew this. No church I pastor is going to vote on something the Bible already says. Okay. Now we don't get to vote on those. We're a voting church. We'll vote on a lot of things and they could have voted to fire me. I mean, that would have been perfectly fine, but we weren't going to vote on something the Bible made clear. Now here were some people and it wasn't everybody in the room, but it was uh, it was a significant number of people in this, in this meeting. But, but, but here, here were people who, who had a respect for the Bible. I mean, they were Bible men. They were in a Bible church, a Baptist church that upheld the word of God and, and had been faithful to the word of God for, for decades, for generations. They were Bible people until there was a question between the authority of Bible and their convenience, their preference, their, their being uncomfortable in the community. And so uh, what happened in the Reformation time is that exact situation and, and they put the tradition first. What we've got to understand is the Bible has final authority. And you know, in our church, and I don't know, a year from now, 20 years from now, we, we from time to time will face the same kind of question. Now, it won't be on homosexuality or race. I mean, those are settled issues, of course. 
But we will face some questions and, and there will be a time when our church will have to decide, are we going to be obedient to scripture? Or are we going to do what's convenient and comfortable and acceptable? And, we, and we're going we're gonna to be put on the, with the spotlight and we're going to have to decide, is the Bible really the final authority? But that's not just something that happens in a church. It happens in our lives much more often. You see, there, there are too many people who, who listen and, and study and read the Bible but when in their life they want to do something that's contrary to the Bible, well, then the Bible doesn't have authority in their lives. The Bible only has authority until it's inconvenient. But what we learn from this is the Bible has final authority. Now that brings us to number five. And I'm running out of time, so I have to go quickly. So we've seen that the Bible is inspired. If it's inspired, it's inerrant. If it's inspired and inerrant, then it's sufficient. If it's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient, then it has authority. If it has authority, then the Bible is a sure foundation for life. Now, very quickly, I want to read to you a short parable. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus has just uh, preached a sermon. It is the word of God. And he says, everybody who will listen and who will apply what he has taught will be like a man who's built his house on the rock. Verse 25, the rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. His house is steady. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And so the man who rejects it, the foundation of his house is sand. Verse 27, the rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed and it's collapsed and it collapsed with a great crash. So here we see perfect illustration of why it is that we need to embrace the Bible as the word of God, the perfect word of God, the sufficient and the final authority in our lives. Now let me share with you just a few observations about this brief parable. Number one, both of these men, two men are mentioned in the parable, each one built a house, one on the rock, one on the sand, both of these men heard the same message. I mean, Jesus just preached a message. He says there's two kinds of people here. Both people heard the same message and apparently respected the message. At the end of the message, everybody was for it. Everybody was happy about it. It's, it's like here this morning. Nobody's being disrespectful. Nobody's stomping out. Nobody's mad. Nobody's angry. We hear a message and we agree. So both of these men, the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand, heard the same message and they were, you know, for, with all appearances, they were in agreement. They were in agreement. Now, the second thing I, observation I make is this. Both had success building a nice house. And so both of them built, built a nice house. They went on with their lives and they built a house and it was a good house. You know, it's easy to build a good house when there are no storms. There are a lot of people who reject out of hand the things of God and life is still good for them. Uh, do, do you believe that there are people in Nacogdoches, in the city of Nacogdoches, in the county of Nacogdoches that, 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 that reject out of hand the word of God? That they're not Christians by any stretch of the imagination, but they're fine. I mean, when there's money in the bank and the job is good and the, and the marriage is fresh and the health is, is, uh, is, is positive and the relationships are close, then, 
Hey, life, I mean, if life is, when life is easy, it doesn't really matter what your foundation is. I, I know people who, who, who have rejected Christ and they're just as happy as, as any Christian that I know because you can have some success. You can enjoy life, whichever is your foundation. But then the third observation is this. There was a storm. And you know, there's always a storm. God's going to test your foundation. And so a storm came. And, it, and you know, you don't begin to see what a person's foundation is until the storm comes. You don't see what a person's foundation is until the health fails. You don't see what a person's foundation is until they lose their job. You don't, you don't see what a person's foundation is until the marriage is strained. You don't, you don't see what their foundation is until the storm comes. But a storm will always come. And that brings me to the last observation. Only the house built on the rock survived. We need to be people who make the Bible our sure foundation. Because at the end of the day, it's only those people whose lives will stand when the storms of life will come. So my, my challenge this morning is that you would make the word of God your constant companion that you would make it your guiding light and your ultimate authority and that we would not just be people who hear a nice message and build our lives upon the sand, but we would be people who, because God's word is our final authority, build our lives upon the rock of God's word. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, let me pray. <coughs> Father, we are so thankful for the word of God, its value to us. Help us to be a people. <coughs> Help us to be a people who will build our lives <coughs> on that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. <laughs>